G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. Ian Harper is one of Australia's best-known economists. He has worked closely with governments, banks, corporates and leading professional services firms at the highest level. In recognition of his 16-year academic career at Melbourne Business School, he was elected Emeritus Professor at Melbourne University on his departure in 2008. Professor Harper is a partner at Deloitte Economics and was the keynote speaker at the recent Lord Mayor of Brisbane's Prayer Breakfast. As a special feature for you now, this highly sought-after and well-respected commentator on economics and finance speaks about faith in the modern marketplace, which he says is meant to have double meaning. We begin the address as Professor Harper begins by looking at how effective the marketplace is as an engine of material growth. At the turn of this century in the year 2000, the Federal Treasury had a retrospective back over the last century, over the 20th century, comparing material prosperity at the beginning of the 20th century with material prosperity at the end. So 100 years worth, if you like, of the marketplace doing its thing, not just here in Australia, but around the world. And they demonstrated there in that article that the richest 75% of those people who were living in the year 2000. So take all of those folk, including people here, living in the year 2000, and rank them all around the world from the richest to the poorest. Fully three quarters of all those people, the top three quartiles, if you want the technical economist's description, the top 75% of all those alive in the year 2000 were richer than the richest 25% of those alive in 1900. Three quarters of the world's population richer than the richest 25% 100 years earlier. You might have heard something about the United Nations Millennium Development Goals. One of those goals was that we in the world would have halved global poverty halved global poverty as it was measured in the year 1990, halved global poverty by the year 2015. Did you know that we've already reached that goal? It was reached in 2012. You can check it for yourself. Just type into Google Millennium Development Goals and you'll be taken to a website which looks not just at that one, halving global poverty, but another seven Millennium Development Goals. And what you will discover is that all eight of them have either been achieved or substantial progress has been made towards their achievement earlier than 2015. Excuse me? Oh, yes. Don't take my word for it. See for yourself. Where did that come from? How did this happen? Global poverty halved? 
Since 1990, China has grown faster and on a scale larger than any other country in recorded history, which has lifted not tens but hundreds of millions of people from grinding abject poverty to standards of living that you and I would regard as still extremely modest, but on a scale, as I say, which is unprecedented. Similar things have happened in India, although not quite at such a rapid pace. The reality is that one-third of the world's population over the last 20 years or so has been lifted from the most basic standards of material prosperity to levels which are higher. And that is part of the reason that we've halved global poverty since 1993, years earlier than we expected to do that. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the marketplace at work. Even our Chinese friends who have tried to come to terms with the tension between the market and a one-party political state nevertheless recognize the power of the market to raise the living standards of their own people. How could you not recognize that? And it isn't just about gross domestic product. You can also look up, if you wish, something called the Human Development Index, which the United Nations publishes. And that picks up additional things like life expectancy, access to clean water, deaths of women in childbirth, infant mortality rates. All of these things are mixed into a much broader measure of human development than the economists' favour of gross domestic product. And you'll find the same story repeated there. You see, the market just doesn't deliver shiny widgets. It does do that but it also delivers things that are important for human flourishing, indeed essential. Folks, we can have faith in the modern marketplace as an engine of material prosperity. We can have faith in the modern marketplace as an engine of opportunity and choice. I've sent you off to the internet a couple of times. Now let me send you off a third time. If you've not come across something called edX... EDX, then you might like to inform yourself. EDX is one of what's called a MOOC, a massive, open, online course. These are courses, in this instance, edX, established by MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and Harvard University, two of the world's great universities, have essentially placed their courses their teaching courses onto the internet to be enrolled in by hundreds of thousands of people for nothing, provided you can get access to an internet connection. And you can take that course, and you can sit the test, and you can get a grade. In one course that the MIT runs in electrical engineering, the top student of 160,000 students, the top student was a young African man from Chad. And he accessed the internet using a device which was run by solar power. The opportunity and the choice which the internet opens up to people who would have had absolutely no chance 
of going anywhere near a place like Harvard or MIT, let alone the University of Queensland, is just extraordinary. There is the marketplace at work in its best mode. We can have faith in the modern marketplace. It's well-placed faith if we're thinking about material prosperity. But our faith in the marketplace is misplaced, misplaced in two important respects. The first, on its own terms. Our faith in the marketplace is misplaced, notwithstanding what I've just said about material prosperity, if we think that the market never fails. You see, the market is the best device we've encountered for creating material prosperity, but it's not as if it is without its faults. Need I recount our experience, not so much ours, but those of countries elsewhere in the world who still haven't recovered from the global financial crisis? The global financial crisis is reputed to have destroyed $6 trillion worth of wealth. The global financial crisis was a major collapse of financial markets a major blot on the way that the market delivers services. These things are real. They're not unique. They happen from time to time, and they are exceptionally destructive when they occur. At a more micro scale, the market also fails when it comes to setting things like wages. I had the privilege of chairing the former Australian Fair Pay Commission, which for four years before the commission was replaced by the Fair Work Commission established by the current government, for four years set minimum wages in our country. Now, I, along with four other people, formed the Australian Fair Pay Commission and our task, amongst others, was to set wages for the lowest paid people in the country. Why do you need a commission to do that? Why can't you let the market decide what people's wages are? After all, that's how most people's wages are decided. The answer is that the market doesn't work in every corner of the economy. As an economist, I went into that role, I suppose, somewhat sceptical, thinking that the market could indeed set these wages. My experience, ladies and gentlemen, was perhaps as you might have expected not carrying into that job the economist's mindset that I did, maybe you would have been less surprised. Uh, but I learned why there are minimum wages. Uh, the reality is that the market would not remunerate these people at anything like the level which is necessary to sustain life and limb if it were left to itself. The number of people, wealthy, successful people, who came to me after minimum wage determinations and said, oh, well done, Ian, that was a good decision. As soon as I'd heard of your decision, I went down and I paid that increment to my gardener. And I would say, well, I'm pleased you did that. Obviously, you're obliged to do that. It's now the law. But why did you need me and my colleagues on the Fair Pay Commission to raise the minimum wage in order to make you do that? If you thought the person was worth that increment, $20 a week, why didn't you give it to them without me? Of course, they're embarrassed. They don't know the answer to that question. But the reality is, 
without the force of law, at least in those parts of the economy where no one has any reason to value the labor particularly and one is inclined to think that's sort of charitable, without the force of law, we couldn't rely on the market to do that job. I've seen that face to face. And it was a sobering lesson for me. So we misplace our faith in the market if we think that it never fails. Most importantly, of course, our faith in the modern marketplace is misplaced if we look to the marketplace for our spiritual welfare as opposed to our material welfare. The market is terrific at delivering material prosperity. It does fail, but basically it does a better job than anything else we've discovered. But that's it. The big mistake is to think that you could look to the market to deliver spiritual as well as material welfare. That's where people go off the rails. If you look to consumption of goods and services as a source of meaning and purpose in your life, then you are bound to be disappointed or worse. Not just economists, but psychologists talk about something called the hedonic treadmill. Sounds like jargon, doesn't it? But the idea itself you will immediately recognize. This is the notion that you simply aren't satisfied. As much as you thought you would be satisfied by getting that new car or the new house or the new clothes or the trip overseas, it very quickly palls very quickly you realize that you accommodate yourself to a higher level of consumption. And it doesn't give you that buzz anymore. Is this all there is? If you think that consumption is an important way of differentiating yourself from others, and let's face it, a fair amount of human pleasure is derived, frankly, from feeling that we're a bit better than the average guy. Well, again, you're bound to be disappointed if you use the market to engage in what economists call conspicuous consumption, using consumption to be seen to be wealthy. People speak about McMansions, which I think captures that notion very well. Having a fancy house might have delivered pleasure to you so long as nobody else had one. But once they become all too common, we even coin the term McMansion as a term of derision. Not so much that people would be foolish enough to do this, but recognizing that in the end, if everybody has got one of these things, they're no longer worthwhile if the purpose was to distinguish yourself from the average crowd. Not only does consumption fail us as a source of meaning and purpose and fulfillment in our lives, the market becomes an ever more demanding taskmaster. If you get onto that hedonic treadmill, it's a very difficult thing to get off, and it just goes faster and faster and faster. A young friend of mine discovered this one day. He worked very long hours, traveled a great deal, so generally speaking, when it was time to put his little boy to bed, he would speak to his little boy over the telephone from wherever it was in the world that he was. 
one day he happened to be in Melbourne and happened to be in the office. And his wife said, little Timmy wants to come and see you. And he said, that'd be terrific. I'm here between one and two. Can you bring him in? So his wife brought little Timmy in to daddy in the office there. They came in the door and mummy said, say hello to daddy. Timmy went straight to the telephone, picked it up and said, hello, daddy. Thankfully for him, he got the message and realized that the market which was serving him was demanding more and more sacrifice from him. And he needed to get his life back into proper perspective. Well, folks, I came to realize that there was more to life than material prosperity myself. I tell that story in Economics for Life if you're interested. As I say, you can find it on the internet and you'll see me writing that story up. I came to realize that as an economist, my economics, my profession, have become my religion. And interestingly enough, I was called to account by two economists. I came to recognize that my economics is terrific as far as it goes. But I had invested in my study and understanding of the marketplace faith which was misplaced. I wonder if I'm alone. What about you? Do you look to the marketplace for your significance? Do you derive your significance from worldly success, social position? Maybe it's your profession. Well, these things are all good, but do they ultimately satisfy? What about security? Where do you derive your security from? Your superannuation fund balance? Your property portfolio? These things ultimately fail to deliver. Worldly success fades as others take over. I'm coming towards the end of my career. My star fades as the young ones come up. All that is as it should be. But if I've invested my very sense of significance and purpose in who I am in my profession, I am bound to be left lonely and embittered. I will be carried off the stage. It must happen. It is the way of all flesh. But if that's who I think I am, I'm on the road to perdition. What about my Superfund balance? Do I have to tell you? What a weak foundation that is for security, as we've just experienced through the GFC. No. What I came to see, thank God, is that my significance and security is ultimately tied up with my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I came to faith, thank God. My significance comes from the fact that Jesus loves me and gave himself for me. The scriptures say absolutely clearly, God so loved the world he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. My significance is grounded in the fact that the Lord Jesus loves me and gave himself for me. My security is grounded in the fact that no one can snatch me from his hand as he himself promised 
John 10. And that underneath whatever happens to me, underneath are the everlasting arms. Deuteronomy 33. And all this, unlike the marketplace, all this without striving. The marketplace is a very hard taskmaster and gets harder and harder the harder you try. And then doesn't deliver significance and security. It's a false promise. My significance and my security in my Christian faith comes to me without striving. The Lord Jesus himself promised that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11. And Paul, of course, describes to the Philippians the peace that passes all understanding. Do you know that peace? You don't get that peace from the marketplace. The marketplace is a place of strife and busyness and purpose. Not a place of peace. Friends, don't hear me wrong. The modern marketplace is good. There are lots of things about the modern marketplace which we can look to with pride. They help us to feed the hungry, to clothe the poor. They help us to be generous, to build our hospitals, our schools, our parks and gardens, to refurbish our wonderful public buildings. All those things the market helps us to do. The market is good, but it is not God. The market is to be respected, not to be worshipped. John Newton, who lived in the late 18th century and into the early 19th century, put his faith in the slave market until he was saved by amazing grace. You know the story. There's a case of a man who had misplaced his faith in the market and came to see how misplaced that was. Well, it was John Newton who wrote these words. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure. None but Zion's children know. Thank you very much. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.